0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Many of us think fur coats are immoral, yet are happy to wear leather shoes. We may fiercely protect tigers and pandas from extinction, while thousands of vital insect species receive less attention and concern. Should we end this hypocrisy by treating all animal species equally, however difficult this might be? Should biodiversity be an end in itself and the basis for intervention? Philosopher Ray Tallis, writer, poet and broadcaster Melanie Challenger, farmer and politician Jamie Blackett and professor of sociology at Kingston University, Kate Peggs, debate the hypocrisy of the way we treat animals. This debate was produced in association with the future normal. The future normal is a place to rediscover how amazing our relationship with animals can be and how to create that change in our everyday lives. Find out more by visiting futurenormal.org.uk. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for thousands more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading
2: thinkers. Welcome to this morning's debate Humans and Other Animals. I'm your host, Miriam Francois. Many think a fur coats immoral and yet are happy to wear leather shoes. We fiercely protect tigers and pandas from extinction. While thousands of vital insect species get notably less attention and concern. Many claim to be concerned about the welfare of animals, but is it the cute and the charismatic that come first? The others are largely an afterthought. Should we end this hypocrisy by treating animal species equally, however difficult this might be? Should biodiversity be an end in itself and the basis for intervention? or are we right to make distinctions based on the value we attach to the species along with the accident of human desire, fashion, and aesthetic? Well, to discuss this and much more, I'm joined by a wonderful panel. Um, Kicking off this morning will be Melanie Challenger, who is a writer, poet, and podcaster, who researches the relationship between humans and the natural world. Next up, we have Raymond Tallis, Uh, Ray is a philosopher, poet, neuroscientist, and physician, whose philosophical writing has been informed by his medical expertise. Next, we have Jamie Blackett. Jamie is a farmer, author, politician, and journalist who writes about rural life and politics for papers like The Telegraph and The Spectator. And last, but certainly not least, we have Kay Peggs. Kay is a professor of sociology at Kingston University and a fellow of the Oxford Centre for Animal Ethics, who argues for non-human animals being accepted into the scope of sociological studies. Should we treat humans and all animals equally? If we kick off with Kay.
3: Um, Well, there's a tension in the question because humans are animals. So I think we should treat all animals equally and that includes humans and other animals. And the question does recognise that there are differences among non-human animals and that is really important because it's a huge number of um, different species and if we don't treat all animals equally then we're being speciesist which means that we're looking at the interests of one species and they're overriding the interests of the greater interests of other species and those species are often devalued in one way or another so how do we decide on how to treat others well one way to do it is to think about this morally and which means that we need to um, think about interests that are broader than our own, broader than ours individually. And we can draw on John Rawls's idea of the theory of justice here and the, the veil of increments. What would we want the world to be like if we didn't know who we were? So we're born into the world, we're individuals, but we don't know who we are. Am I a worm, am I nan, am I a human? So how do I want the world, world to be? And this means I move away from the bias of thinking about myself and thinking about myself as human. And so in order to think about treating all animals equally, human and non-human animals, we need to put ourselves in the place of other animals and think about how we treat them. So yes, we should treat all animals equally.
2: Thank you. Uh, Jamie, should we treat humans and all animals equally?
4: Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, uh, as a farmer, this is very real for me. It's not just a dry academic question. Uh, we have something like 800 cattle here, and I'm also responsible for the biodiversity on this farm. I think if you took that question to its logical conclusion, uh, you would have to stop farming livestock uh, animals, and that would have very profound uh, impact on our ecosystem. I'm also an arable farmer, and uh, the, the arable part of my farm is effectively a desert for wildlife. Uh, we're growing plant-based foods, sounds wonderful, but uh, if you l- look at that part of the farm compared to the the other part of the farm where we've got cattle grazing, it's covered in birds and uh, small mammals and uh, i think you know you, we as humans have to accept that we are the, the top of the the food chain and if we if we sort of bunk out of that then that has very profound uh, effects on our ecosystem and the other thing as far as the biodiversity is concerned uh, if we treated all animals as equal then we would uh, abrogate our responsibility as the only apex predator left in our ecosystem. I believe that all animals should be treated with respect and humanity, uh, but I I don't believe that all animals should be viewed as equal, or certainly that humans should be viewed as equal to all
5: animals.
2: Thank you so much. Raymond Tallis, should we treat humans and all animals equally?
5: Um, I'm knocking on a bit now, and yet I still don't know what kind of creature I am. I'm pretty sure I'm not a soul or an angel, but I don't think I'm a beast. Or rather, there's a big, huge gap between me and even my nearest primate kin, chimpanzees or whatever. So it's important to think about what's in the gap, and I know we're going to talk about that in due course, but it would include a thousand cognitive handshakes that make the fabric of shared lives and form the basis for our normative sense, our complex sense of ought expressed in the notion of explicit rights and duties, duties that extend beyond our immediate circle. And it's this gap that makes it difficult to think of animals as fellow citizens of the planet and makes it difficult to talk about their rights any more than we would talk about their duties. For example the duty of predators not to prey on their prey. More generally our differences raise questions about how the treatment of animals should differ from the treatment of other people. Now the foundation of morality is we shouldn't treat our fellow humans purely instrumentally, as means for an end, but as ends in themselves. But this couldn't guide us in our treatment of animals. So we have to think of criteria we apply to judging the uses of animals as dinner, as a material for handbags, as beasts of burden, and so on and so forth. But beyond this is also the wider issue of our treatment of nature, and for example, the environmental consequences of farming such as the greenhouse gases that come from the rear end of cows. And there is the question of whether the lives of animals subordinated to human use, as in farming, are worse than those they have in the wild, and that is not very clear. So I hope I persuaded the question is even more difficult uh, than it might have seemed at first sight.
2: Uh, Melanie Challenger, should we treat humans and all animals equally?
5: in what ways are we going to treat them equally
6: is what, what we need to answer first. And there's a great um, story uh, in, in Daoism um, which is of the Marquis of Blue. Now a seabird arrives at the court and it's very very unwell and the Marquis says well it, give it entertainment, give it wine, give it meat and he, and he will recover. So this goes on for three days. They treat the seabird as they think that we would, how, how we would like to be treated and of course the seabird dies because what the seabird needed was the things that it requires itself for its own flourishing. So I think what we need to answer here is not to see other, um, to see animals, all other animals, humans included, in their own, within their own needs and requirements and so what Where the equality comes from, firstly could be from a position of how we're framing them, so are we looking, we can look on all other, all beings as moral subjects for instance, but we don't have to see all other animals as uh, moral agents, we can see all other animals as owed their own respect at a baseline. But we don't have the same duties that follow from that the duties will be in response to the needs of those animals themselves and so no if we're going to treat other animals the same equally we have to ask the question first in in what way would would they be requiring us to treat them in the same way as us and what we will find is if we follow from that We'll have lots of different ways in which we can interact with lots of different species that are respectful of the differences that there are across all of the taxa.
2: Melanie Chandra, thank you for that. So now we're going to open up to our first theme of the debate which is how are humans different from animals? I know some of you have touched on this already. So, so there are millions of species of animals of all shapes and sizes, yet we believe that one of these species, one of the more hairless great apes, is categorically different from all others, or at least some of us here do. And for this I'd like to kick off with uh, Raymond Tallis, who I think has already started us off on this, but we'd like to hear a bit more from you on that one.
5: The difference goes very deep. It goes into the nature of consciousness. Human consciousness is um, characterised, amongst other things, by what philosophers would call joined intentionality, the ability to share our experiences with others, which begins very early in life. You know, children who haven't got speech yet are pointing things out to their parents and so on. But out of that come a whole variety of other aspects of human consciousness. Hence, time, uh, our sense that X is the case, our ability to make things explicit, our institutions, our appeal to explicit rules, et cetera, et cetera, our sense of nationhood and so on. All of these things are derivatives of a fundamental difference between human consciousness and the consciousness of even uh, the um, higher primates. Don't take my word from it. I'm not a primatologist, but some of the uh, most um, uh, eminent primatologists such as Thomas Sudendorf and so on have spelled out this gap between us and apes, um, and even the the great apes, uh, is pretty clear-cut and it really just requires one to acknowledge what is in front of one's nose in order to uh, see that.
6: I I sympathise with that and I certainly think moral agency and abstraction, so our ability to live in the conceptual world, is a sign of the kind of cognitive niche that human beings have adapted for. So we you know primates mammals broadly actually mammals broadly show uh, because they're so you know mostly social beings um have kind of similar nervous systems and, and a lot of the kind of similar um requirements of dealing with the external world and the internal world are quite similar um you see a lot of pre- a premium on cognition and, and certain cognitive skills across mammals broadly you see that very strongly in primates um, and I see, I I, I know uh, Thomas siddendorf's work and Michael Tomasello is is another um, who would push for a kind of very much an exceptionalist response to comparative cognitive work. But there are others like Franz de Waal, for instance, who's also a very eminent um, uh, a primatologist who doesn't push for such a hard line on, on the differences that he is seeing either in the neurochemical physiological structures or in fact behaviourally. What, what I think we're often talking about with the gap is cultural because if you start looking back to where language likely emerged, for instance, now some argue for a sort of very, sorry is a language definition thing, but some would argue for kind of 70,000 years ago but many also argue for more like 500,000 years ago. So. Pre speciation to Homo sapiens. Now, even if we went, you know, 10,000 years ago, we're not going to see the huge gap that we're seeing now where we're sending sports cars out into space. So, a lot of the gap happens over time because we accumulate external information through our cultures and our technologies. How we respond to that morally becomes very problematic because, because of that cultural gap that is nothing to do with, you know, what you feel or experience and how we ought to respond to that. It becomes very difficult to say that because you can talk on a computer, you somehow have a greater value because that would also argue that our ancestors who didn't have computers would somehow have less value intrinsically and less duties owed to them than we might have now. So I just think it's a messier picture than that, that w- I guess would be my response.
2: Kay, can I bring you in here? Language and cognition are what distinguish us um, as humans.
3: There are real problems with the, way, with the framing of the argument because all animals are different, all species are different. So just to say humans are different from all other animals is quite um, problematic because we could say the same about many different animals. They're all different to each other. But we don't really know that much about other animals. We communicate, we seem to spend a lot of our time as humans talking about how superior we are and what makes us superior. And we have this and and we recognize that in ourselves because we recognize who we are. And to me, it's largely socially constructed. So what we do is we construct this difference as being one of superiority. And so we talk about ourselves as being superior. And much of this, I mean, much of the debate is is hundreds of years old. It goes back to Descartes, who thought that we thought as well as had physical bodies and other animals didn't um, think they would just had physical bodies. And we seem to be still developing that same argument And to me, we need to listen much more to those scientists, if if we're going to listen to science in this, and that's the way the debate is being framed, because we might want to think about it philosophically and ethically, as well as in this biologically scientific way that we're talking about. But listen to scientists like Mark Beekoff, who notices many resonances between the ways in which we behave, the ways in which we communicate, and emotions in other animals. And we know as well, with the problems of knowing other minds, how difficult it is to know the minds of other humans, let alone knowing the minds of other species. So to make decisions about how they think and how they communicate, and indeed, whether they have cells or whether they have cultures in, in terms of how they interact with each other, is very difficult for us to determine. But nevertheless, we still seem to be, want to determine that in a way that makes us seem to be hierarchically superior so we're the we see ourselves as the yardstick and I think that's a real problem we need to think outside of that.
2: Jamie do you want to come in on that how can we know that intelligent animals don't experience a sense of self even in a diminished capacity or in a different capacity as Kay has pointed out?
4: The fact that we we are here um five of us talking over zoom uh, powered by electricity which is Probably being uh, created by uh, power stations pumping uh, greenhouse gases out into the atmosphere and that sort of thing is is proof that of, of two things really. One is that that we've evolved into um, a massive supremacy, superiority, and power over all other animals, which is not the same as as moral superiority, but it, it is a fact of life that we now influence the environment and therefore the environment in, in which all other animals uh, live um, to a degree that was just simply inconceivable um, just a few millennia ago. Uh, and also the fact that we're, we're agonizing over these um, moral distinctions is another important distinction between us and, and animals. Um, we are capable of Reason in a way that most other animals are not. Um, we question uh, whether we should eat smaller animals. Uh, most other animals um, don't, um, <laughs> don't don't even think about it. They'll, they'll just, if they see um, a prey animal, they will eat it without thinking about it. Um, so I think it's, uh, and this sort of comes back to the, um, the enlightenment, really, and the, the, the ideas of, of uh, reason and logic and empiricism. Um, we've learned through experience uh, that we can influence the, the animal world. I mean, we, uh, as farmers and conservationists, we focused on three things, uh, habitat food source, and protection, uh, which, which normally means uh, control of, of other predators. That is a sort of part of the Enlightenment thinking. And my fear is that the animal rights movement, or certainly the more extreme ends of it, uh, I see as part of the, the counter-Enlightenment, because it's going back to superstition, the sort of superstition that we had before the Enlightenment. Uh, so, uh, and that leads us nicely into the other question you asked about, about sentience, I think, wasn't it? And, and how animals feel. And, and I, I mean, we're in, we're in really dangerous territory here. I mean, the government is, is, I believe, in the Queen's speech, there was something about animal sentience, and they're gonna pass legislation that acknowledges animal sentience and of course i agree that all all animals are sentient that they are capable of feeling pain and and certainly they feel emotion i mean uh, as uh, as a cattle farmer <coughs> i've learned to look at uh, the way that cows uh, ears are pointing i mean it's very you you can instantly tell when something was wrong but when their ears go down and in fact it's it's really extraordinary the way um if a calf has pneumonia you can you can you could almost tell what sort of pneumonia it is from the angle of its ears uh i mean i think that they've, they've, they've now sort of starting to prove that sort of thing um so yeah i mean i think we we again, going back to my original thoughts that you know we're not equal to animals but that we need to treat animals with with respect i mean we need to to learn more about the way that they feel uh, pain and feel emotions and uh design as farmers design our systems accordingly and 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 also um deal with the as i said the biodiversity
2: Um, Melly, I know you wanted to jump in before we move on to theme two. Please, go ahead.
6: Let's just be clear about a few things. The first thing is that the Enlightenment ideas came out of a a monotheistic, largely Christian perspective. The men, and they were largely men who were putting forward those ideas at the time, John Locke and and, and so forth, that sort of generation, were um, very religious, very bound within religious of religious framing, which was largely an exceptionalist. Framing. Now that is not inevitable around the world, there are many other worldviews that situate themselves with regard to other species in different ways. Um, So indigenous worldviews that are more animistic, for instance, in which they sacralize these species that they hunt and eat, is a very different kind of relationship, responding to natural knowledge in a very different kind of way to what you will get in, in a kind of intensive farming modern society that has been built on monotheistic views. So that would be one thing to say straight away, that it's not straightforward, that we can consider different worldviews and there are different ways to frame the relationship that we might have with other species. That's the first thing. The second thing is the idea that we are an apex predator and this is somehow bringing value into the world. Actually, our predatory nature is precisely what complicates our moral nature. Um, It is it isn't inevitable Our morality emerges from the fact that we are not a herbivore. We happen to be a predator and it does complicate our moral senses, often which are physical and they're experienced, they're not just rational, they're not just logical. We are responsive to drooping ears, for instance, you know, that affects us and it affects the moral actions that follow from that. But our predation, our our role as a predator, if we were to say that that is what gives value, bear in mind that we have about 4% of the the mammal biomass mass now that is is wild. On top of that, we have the most populous bird in the world is the chicken. On top of that, we have mammal sizes, and this has been happening since pre-homo sapiens. Mammal sizes are now smaller uh, than they've ever been since the dinosaurs were on earth and that is through human action. So it's very difficult to start making value judgments. I think we can make statements about things but when you start allowing value to creep in you have to be very careful uh, w- what you're saying because it's, it's often a lot more complicated. Than
4: there is a definite value from us, from our interventions in controlling meso predators who are predating on other animals and we we can actually prevent extinctions of birds like the lapwing and the curlew and uh, other and small small mammals that are in danger of extinction by uh, by controlling those meso predators because we we by our actions of taking out the yeah. you know the eagle owls the wolves the bears that sort of thing we've we've allowed a completely fake environment in this country to develop uh, and we have a responsibility, I think, to uh, to a certain extent, put that right. I mean, you know, we could introduce wolves and bears, reintroduce wolves and bears and lynxes and things, but I mean, in most parts of the country, that's not terribly practical. It, it might be okay in parts of the highlands of Scotland. And it, so if we, if we don't intervene and, and act as a predator to control, for example, foxes, and I would argue also probably we should be controlling Badgers, which are really now too numerous. I know that's very contentious, but we should be. I
6: think. Sorry. Um,
4: then then, we, then you know there is a di- that, that there's a direct causality there. We we will we will lose certain species.
2: Let's go move on to theme two, if you don't mind, which is about. Um, hypocrisy about the way that we treat animals and I think some of these themes may well come up in in this particular part of the conversation so we couldn't bear to watch someone beat a dog yet we will happily slaughter and consume more intelligent animals like pigs we worry about the loss of panda habitats on the other side of the world but we don't mind wearing the skin of our fellow creatures so th- the second theme here today is are we hypocritical about the way that we treat animals and I would love to bring in Kay at this point because I think. I suspect you may have a strong view on this one.
3: I think that the previous discussion shows the hypocrisy. We want to stop some animals being made extinct by hunting others. So there's this idea that we are somehow in control of the environment and that our control is somehow positive. Whereas we've had a very negative effect, if I think of humans, on the environment and the discussion around the Anthropocene is, it shows the sorts of negative effects that we've had. But certainly in terms of hypocrisy, we are, we are hypocritical. We want to save some and kill others. We want to save those who we think are more beautiful or more like us in, in, um, in favour of those who we think aren't. But also, if we just take the dog as an example, we have the dog as an animal that we want to live with, a companion who lives with us. But so dogs also appear in um, experiments. They're used in experiments in laboratories. So then the dog moves from being a companion to being an experimental subject. So we're hypocritical about animals within one species, let alone thinking about all animals, including humans, because we also have inequalities among humans, so we treat humans hypocritically, as well as other animals. We are very hypocritical in how we think about and treat other animals. Um, That's a strong view.
2: Yes, Raymond, (laughs) please come in. we would love to hear your thoughts.
5: Oh, thank you. I mean, first of all, just to park up this business of difference, it's a different kind of difference between humans and all the other animals and other animals and each other. The difference is vast, the Anthropocene has already been mentioned by Kay, but when it comes to hypocrisy we are incommensurate rather than superior to other other animals. Of course the judgment that we superior is really very suspect because it implies we can mark our own homework and somehow put ourselves top of the class. That's nonsense. We are differently different and uh, that Profundity that difference is evidenced in the enormity of the Anthropocene. But the fact remains is uh, that we do value our survival and that of our loved ones greater than the survival of most other animals.
6: I th- again, I, I think it's possible for there to be, you know, either, even more sort of nuance within it. And often it comes down to... Um, uh, to making sure that we, we understand kind of the instrumental value thing that Raymond mentioned earlier. So, um, you know, to, to go back to the kind of, um, Predator hypocrisy, and Kay touched on this, you know, I mean, I actually live in in a rural area and I live in and have done for many, many years. So I'm totally embedded in a rural area and I greatly sympathize with what Jamie's saying. And I have many colleagues and and friends and and people that I know in the community. Most people around me are farmers or they're running land for, there's grass shooting, pheasant shooting in the area that I am. Um, So I, I hear all of these sorts of things all the time. You know, there are several things that we just don't, you know, don't know that I would say to add a bit of nuance here. We don't, for instance, know what a healthy curly population looks like. Nobody knows that. My husband's a seabird ecologist. I can tell you for now that no no one quite knows what that is. We don't have that data. So we're making best guesses and we're making it within this idea that, our countryside should have this number of creatures or these creatures should be here and other creatures shouldn't. So, you know, and I hear these sorts of things all the time. The reality is we don't quite know. We're making best guesses. We're picking around from time scales and baselines that we think will work for us. But mostly, we're able to live with that huge amount of flexibility and the question of whether, you know, why a curly would matter and a pheasant wouldn't, for instance, or why, you know, these sorts of things are deeply problematic, often very underexamined and often very rarely publicly debated or deliberated in any reasonable way. Um, And they are complicated and they are nuanced. but they are possible in our worlds, because basically other animals have no intrinsic value; we do treat them as ends, and I think it is possible to rethink that and to unpick that without falling into this situation. I would like to hear Raymond respond, respond to that actually because I would be interested. You know you can have interspecies in sort of intraspecies obligations, going back to that kind of Marcus of Flu idea other animals have different requirements you can both allow to have intrinsic value and not assume that human beings always have kind of instrumental rights over other species but you don't have to necessarily um, say that in all situations therefore we treat a mosquito in the same way that we would a baby because that wouldn't be how we would flourish our flourishing is very different the kind of thing you know that would be really um, uh, you know, morally disar- and psychologically disastrous for human beings. So we have to respond to our, our you know, the, the duties and, and needs that we have to flourish f- for us, but we can't. that doesn't close off being responsive and complicating the kind of moral duties we might owe to other species if we pay attention to their distinct and different needs as organisms.
2: Um, I will bring Raymond back in on that, but Jamie, I'm very keen to hear your thoughts on this and whether you think there are hypocrisies in British wildlife policy more broadly.
4: Well, I think certainly, I mean, just well, just picking up on a couple of those points, Kay asked um, about control and, you know, why should we assume we are, we're in control? Well, well, we are in control. I mean, whether we like it or not, as a farmer, decisions I make or whether I plough up a field or whether I plant trees or look after the hedges or whatever I mean it, it's even cleaning out a ditch has an impact on the on the newt population I mean we 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 are in control and Melanie was saying how do we know what a healthy po- uh, curlew population looks what it looks like well we'll know where, when there are no curlews that that's not healthy um you know we're we're on the brink of extinction with with quite a lot of birds in particular in this country and and another small mammals like the red squirrel for example um and so it, it, the hypocrisy i mean we i mean there's okay you can argue there's this big hypocrisy that that we um you know we say that we 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 love animals and we treat animals with respect and then we hunt them or we farm them and eat them or whatever and and I, we can agonize about that but i I mean, I guess, I guess the fact, you know, there's a broader truth that the reason that we do is that we've always done it, and we've, we as humans have evolved to do that, um, and that's part of being human, in my mind. In mind. Uh, but in, in terms of policy, you talked about policy, yeah, and there are definite. I, ca- I can highlight a number of hypocrisies. I mean, talking about squirrels, for example. I mean, we we know there's plenty of empirical evidence that uh, if you have grey squirrels coexisting with red squirrels then the red squirrels get wiped out by the, the squirrel pox uh carried by the grey squirrels and and also you know they get out competed and and the grey squirrel is not is an alien species um introduced by the duke of bedford in 1858 or whenever it was um and uh you know i I have no difficulty in uh if I see a gray squirrel here because uh, we also have a healthy population of red squirrels, one of the last places that does uh then I have no hesitation in in trapping that that gray squirrel and and killing it i, I to me that is a uh, of a, a moral judgment that, that it, uh, i'm fine with but there are people who disagree with that and there there there, there is a, a movement in this country led by people like chris packham to have the gray squirrel protected knowing full well the uh the impact that it has on the on the endangered red squirrel species and that to me is a hypocrisy i think there's a, a hypocrisy in the people who say that uh, we should not do do something about the TB in badgers because TB affects badgers dreadfully. They suffer from it uh, and die. And I think they, that you know that is something that it needs to be dealt with, irrespective of the the impact on uh, on the cattle herd in this country. And I, and I, and I fully accept that the, the cattle are the the main culprits. The people should not be moving cattle around the country and spreading the disease. I'm I'm very clear on that. But I also, you know, believe that there is a hypocrisy in saying that you should not cull badgers, knowing that uh, by not doing so, there's this terrible disease in in the badger population that's just going to carry on proliferating. Uh, And there's a a massive uh, hypocrisy, I think, in in the argument uh, that the the, the, the vegan movement um, promotes uh, you know they, they they talk about the the cruelty to uh, to animals, the eating um, eating them, using the the leather and and actually the biodiesel from the tallow, which something is never gets mentioned. Um, but I can say as a as a mixed farmer that that and this has been proved in numerous studies that many more many many more sentient creatures die or are deprived of life. Uh, through arable farming through through cropping through you know producing plant-based food so there's a there's a massive hypocrisy here because we you know we anything we eat um some creature has has died or been deprived of its environment in order to to create that food so you know that there's another example of our hypocrisy i think but there are many
2: thank you to all of you i i know that um we wanted to uh raymond you might have wanted to come back on this one i'm wondering if you can bring that in maybe to your answer on the third question because i do want to touch on this one which is the the future of the movement you know Um, The fact that animal rights in the West has been growing, is this going to continue? Where is it going to end? What's the direction of travel uh, for this particular movement?
5: It it just seems to me that James is, is right. There is a hypocrisy. There is a blindness to the consequences of any decision we make in our relationship to the animal world. And the consequences will always include some negative effects on the animal world. And those negative effects are invisible when we don't particularly like or embrace the animals in question. And they are visible if we uh, find them cute and, and so on and so forth. I think the important thing is to appreciate that our primary concern as human beings is probably for other human beings. And I don't feel ashamed of valuing other people's children above the children of other animals. I just feel that's something that I cannot. So if I had the choice, uh, between killing a child or allowing a child to be killed and killing a predator, I would not hesitate to kill the predator. And I think that's probably true of everybody around this virtual table. Any direction we go has to always acknowledge the kind of things that James has highlighted, which that there's any positive approach towards the welfare of animals will always bring negative consequences, even when it, include, when it includes excluding uh, using animals, uh, 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 using animal, animals directly. Uh, I think the fact remains is for good or worse, we are many billions of people on the planet, we will have a huge impact on other species and that impact will be largely to our advantage rather than the advantage of the other species.
2: Thank you, Raymond. Um, can I bring you K in? You know, Do you realistically believe that we can live in a world without cruelty to animals? Is that where you see the movement going?
3: I think that it would be lovely if we could live in that world, but I don't know how possible it is. But we have agency. Other animals have agency as well, but we have agency. And the question, in a way, it doesn't really assume this, but it could be assumed in this way as if we don't have agency ourselves. And thinking about what Jamie said earlier about vegans, I'm a vegan. And um, I think the one thing, one of the things we can say about vegans, and, and the same with you, Jamie, as a, as a farmer, is that we think about our relationships with other animals and with the environment. And many humans don't think about those issues. So I think there's a similarity between all of us in that we're thinking about it. And whether or not you're someone who promotes the, the rights of other animals or the well being of other animals, we're all thinking about that. And I think that's really important. I think that it's never possible to be a complete vegan because we all know that um, other animals die in the process of giving us food, but it's the industrial farming and the farming of animals for killing that is the issue and the problem and also for using their milk and so on.
2: Could we all be aiming to be vegan?
3: We, to me, it would be, (laughs) that would be a very, that would be a preferable way to be. But being vegan is not just about food. It's not wearing other parts of animals, you know, like the the skins that Jamie referred to with leather and so on. I think, not to criticize, Raymond, but I think that often in this debate, there's this emotive argument about whether or not you would save a child or another animal. And I I really think that we should, for me, we should be moving beyond those sorts of emotional decisions and thinking about our place as um, beings in a world of many beings and how we should treat those beings. And just thinking about being vegan, as you just said, Melody, is one way of moving towards thinking about our relationship with others.
2: Thank you, Kate. Um, can I bring you in, Jamie, because I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts on the future of the movement and whether we should all go vegan.
4: Well, I certainly don't believe we should all go vegan. I mean, I <clears throat> I would see the effects uh, here more perhaps than, than all of you would, because, uh, you know, we we could... We could turn the whole farm over to cropping over to, to, to growing potatoes and, and vegetables other vegetables and, and um, cereals and, and um to produce uh plant so-called plant-based food uh, for everybody but uh it would have a, a a terribly bad impact on our soil health which relies on animal manures uh, i mean uh, you know it, otherwise it all has to come out of a bag from the petrochemical industry and that you know that has a terrible effects on soil health uh and, and and as i said it would have a, a really bad effect on biodiversity um i mean i think that but the animal uh, rights movement has, has and it might sound strange coming from me but i mean it has done a lot of good i mean you know that you know there are in this country there are no longer um you know, pigs in crates and, and, and cattle kept in, in awful dark old buyers that I remember from my youth. My fear is that it's, that there are malign forces uh, uh, on both sides, of, of, actually, of the spectrum, uh, on, the, on the left, but also, perhaps more insidiously, I think corporate capitalism has a lot to answer for. Uh, the big global conglomerates, Kellogg, Cargill, all these huge multinational firms who are answerable to nobody, you know, they No government is big enough to take to take them on and they've worked out that, you know There's a far bigger margin from selling Consumers a a sort of plant-based gloop with sugars and vegetable oils and things dressed up to be uh, meat or milk or whatever uh, than there is from, you know, selling the straight product. So they're, they're, they're pushing it from one end. And, and you've got this sort of anti-capitalist movement at the other end. And I, and I don't think the media are, in this country at the moment are entirely balanced. So I, I think the, the short answer to your question is that the animal rights movement will run and run because it's got, it's got all the power and the arguments at the moment.
2: Thank you so much, uh, Jamie. Melanie, do you want to give us your thoughts on the future of
6: the movement? Yeah, very quickly, I would say we've, we've dressed up a lot of imperfection here, presented a lot of imperfection. Imperfection isn't an argument for the status quo, I should clarify. So, yes, it is true that if we were to, to re, you know, we have to rethink certain things. There are certain moral dilemmas that face us. We have the anthropocene we have a biodiversity crisis you know we 've got we are as Jamie has pointed out a huge influence and as Kay has pointed out and Raymond, we also have moral agency and therefore we need to respond to that that is fundamental to what we are um, but values do shift and we have new evidence we have new evidence of moral significance so starting from Darwin but taking us right through to very recent work in what we understand about sentience, what we understand about um, feelings, pain, suffering, you know, we have new evidence that we have to respond to and new conditions morally that we have to respond to. We can't duck the sorts of dilemmas that are, that are facing us in the future. And I would say that, you know, it's, I, I worked on whaling. So when I was younger on the history of whaling now, we, that was an oil industry, it was a boom and bust oil industry, it also sat in a time of very different values in terms of how we thought about other animals and purely instrumental. Now that system led to, um, and it was a deep tradition for people, really important tradition that, that, you know, for people's lives, for people's livelihoods, great major source of income across Europe and North America, but the realities are that we drove those animals because we had gave them absolutely no value on their own terms, purely instrumentalized them, industrial forces were applied to that and you ended up with the near extinction of whales in the Southern Ocean and the bowhead whale and and, and the right whales um, in, in the northern latitudes. So we had to have a moratorium in because frankly, people would have made more from the capital on, the, on killing all of the whales than they would have done in, in doing it in a more sustainable way. But what we found is that over the years since, value, values have shifted. We look at whales in a very different way now, and the economies have shifted too. So you actually make more money now from, from whale watching than we did in the original industry that we had. Values can shift and economies can shift but it takes time and it's often you know quite messy and you need a fair space for deliberation and thought.
2: Thank you so much. I want to thank all of our panel for your contributions. We could have kept going a lot longer but unfortunately our time is up. Thank Thank you.
1: Thank you. 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 Thanks for listening to Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to like and subscribe and visit iai.tv for thousands more podcasts videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.